Welcome to episode 66 of the Left Behind Game Club. This week, we play Bioshock. They told me, son, you're special. You were born to do great things. You know what? They were right. Welcome to the Left Behind Game Club, our never-ending attempt to make sure that no game is left behind. I'm your host, Jacob McCourt, and today I have two friends with me. The first friend, you know him, you love him, his name is Michael Ruffalo. I'm excited to talk about a great game that I loved. Me too. I loved, I loved this game as well, and to talk more about this game that we both loved is Mo Murtati. I will become Hokage. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> what? It's a leader of the Hidden Leaf Village in Naruto. Continue. Okay. <laughs> Great. This is now an anime podcast. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about Neon Genesis Evangelion? I do not know what that is. Let's not. Okay. What game are we playing? Today we are talking about Bioshock, released originally in 2007 on the Xbox 360 and on PC, developed by 2K Boston and 2K Australia, published by 2K Games. Gentlemen, let's talk about this damn video game. What do you know about Bioshock? Oh, man. What a, what a question. Okay. So... This, this is also my history with Bioshock. Oh, boy. I was totally, totally, in, in every possible way, my imagination was captured by that first trailer. Do you guys know the trailer that I'm talking no. about? Yes. Okay. So the trailer starts, you know, I can almost do it beat for beat, but the, the summary of it is you're a person in rapture. You don't know what's going on, or it doesn't look like you know what's going on. Um, you see bees, I think, coming out of your skin. It's one of the plasmids. Um, you see a little sister. You get into a fight with, and when I say you, I mean this is all in the first-person perspective. Uh, get into a fight with some splicers, and then a big daddy comes along and drills you through a wall. So a little sister is a tiny little demon girl. <laughs> a splicer is like a zombie, I guess. Yes. And the big daddy is a giant like scuba diving, mon- not a monster, but yeah. like a giant metal man with a drill at his, as his right hand. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it... I, I'm, I don't take issue with splicers being zombies, but I think the more apt comparison is junkies. Like yeah. They are, yeah. They yeah. are They are alive. They have not died. We're splitting hairs. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Genetic um, junkies. And yeah, so I was so totally enamored with this trailer. I was just so on board with every piece of info that came. And as more information came about, I was on the 2K message boards and just sucked in, and I was I, I I talked with people online in a very polite manner about objectivism and the philosophy of the game and what we could expect in the game and decoding every little piece of information that was released before it came out. In fact, I worked with some people to create a Discord server to create a strategy guide of this game just before it came out or as, as not it was a discord out. server, but like a, Oh, IRC IRC. Okay. So you're like, like a legitimate Bioshock groupie. I am. I was like so sold on this game. My expectations could not have been higher. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when it came out, it was, it made me cry. It was the best game for the longest time. My favorite game. So a lot, a lot of baggage coming into this playthrough. It's like it's like your parents told you we're going to Disney World in six months, and you spent those six months super exciting. When you got there, you're like, "Oh my yeah. God, Mickey!" Yeah, gotcha. Exactly. <laughs> and this gotcha. game actually has like some Walt Disney comparisons. I've never been right? to Disney World or Land or stop. Yeah, really? Never. Me neither. No. Me neither. Stop. Didn't, didn't what? Li- didn't live that life. Yeah. Am I just a spoiled brat? Is that no, the thing here? No. 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 no Mike, you aren't we, seeing we it. Can, Mike's we nodding. We can fairly say that yes, he is a spoiled brat. <laughs> Mo, what did you know about Bioshock? Um. So, it, it, first of all, it came out in 2007. Yes. That was a 
really big year in terms of video games. However, during that time, my, what a good year! Great yeah, vintage. So the one the, to, to, what's it called? Refresh people's memory. That was Call of Duty for life. That was. Uh, I think Halo 3 came out then. Is that Gears of War life too? I think so. That was like the monster year. And for me, my entire existence revolved around Call of Duty 4. So I wasn't like Mike where I was attracted by Bioshock. I just wanted to play Call of Duty 4 with my friends online after school, hours and hours and hours. And it wasn't until several years later, just I always talked to Mike about video games. And he's like, you have to try Bioshock. You have to try Bioshock. (laughs) And it must have been one of the first few like Steam sales where it's like it went down like 20% or something. And I was like, all right, let's give it a shot. He never, he always talked so highly about it and that was the first time i played it and i vaguely remember anything and i remember just the characters the story the, the, the little bit of the missions um and i I, th- I came out like holy crap this is pretty cool it's a very good first person i guess adventure shooter kind of game and that's all i remembered from there and when he said it's played it again i'm like okay cool this is a good game to actually get that refresher because it was i remember it being great that's kind of dive in that's kind of what i knew it was mostly a recommendation from Mike over there. Before I tell my piece, 2007, the games that come out in that year, Halo 3, Assassin's Creed, Bioshock, Crackdown, Crisis, Mass Effect, Portal, Rock Band, Skate, The Darkness, The Witcher, Uncharted, Super Paper Mario, Super Mario Galaxy, and Team Fortress 2. What a a vintage. What a good year. year. Dang. That was such a good year. So as far as my uh, my connection to Bioshock, I praised at the altar of Ken Levine uh, mm-hmm. back in 2007, who is the writer, kind of creative director behind the game. Uh, much like you, I followed the trailers, E3 2006, thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread, pl- got the special edition. It's still buried in my basement somewhere. Um, the music just like spoke to me. The design of the Big Daddy spoke to me. And I was just like, this is a video game that I'm going to play the crap out of. And that's even before I understood the political implications of the story <laughs> when I'm just like ooh shooter shoot the things whereas now coming to it I appreciate it even more to be honest with you I'm really excited to talk about this game with you guys so I just okay this game has been my favorite game for such a long time and this playthrough again broke my heart no because I did not enjoy it in fact I couldn't finish it this time. Was it mechanics or something? Was it like story? Was it? I mean, no, like, we can get into it as yeah. we go. Jacob's picking his jaw up off the floor. Yeah. Um, but so much of it has to do with knowing what the beats are ahead of time and yeah. um, being embarrassed at what I thought was amazing back in the day. I don't think this game ages like from a pers- <laughs> from like revelations about game design as well as it did in the moment and that says so much about you know the culture of gaming having changed but it just it it, i kind of felt embarrassed playing through it again wow that's so i guess before we start i would also put this game in my top five of all time okay um and i would say i'm not as not negative but like i i played through it i finished it I appreciate it for what it was and the mm-hmm. era in which it came out and exactly. some of the things that it had done, but especially from a mechanical perspective, it does not age well. Can, well, I mean, I don't know if I would go there, but I don't know if you guys remember, this was the game that everyone threw at Roger Ebert when he said, there is there's no that. way that games can be art. And everyone said Bioshock was the Citizen Kane of gaming. And looking back on it, this is not aged in any way close to Citizen Kane. And it has been way shorter of a can, time period. Can we actually even think of a game, though, that like from then or more more older, I guess, that's does age well? Because I feel like we've had a pattern of playing a bunch of games and saying it doesn't age well. Oh, yeah, they, they're super old. And we've got seen so much better things like, like moving forward. I mean, Shadow of the Colossus held up really well. Oh, I thought you, were, you weren't a huge fan because of the mechanics and things like that. Uh, you know, for the most part, I thought it, I thought it aged really well. Oh, and um, with, with with that game, too, there was really no talking. It was mostly just for sure. take down yeah. an object. But this one seems a little bit like there's a lot of different elements that... I think Half Life Two aged really well. Psychonauts. Psychonauts still well aside from the meat the meat circus the carnival yeah level. that's what I'm saying it's like there's one a, level I, one I, little slice I feel like a lot of games Uncharted Two Mass Effect Two and here's the thing I I without jumping right to the end I think this game still holds up if this is the first time you play it mm-hmm. but I think 
you know, your second or third playthrough, I don't know how anyone gets enjoyment out of it. Half the value comes from the turn. And half, yeah, the turn, the... The turn was masterful at the time. Yes. Do we... Do we want to get into any of that? Where do we want to go from here? I think we should talk about how we played it first because okay. I think it's important to draw the line between what Bioshock and Bioshock the collection is, but then okay. I think we should get right into it. So I'll Let's just ask, it. how did you play this game, Mo? On Steam. Okay, you played it on PC. Did you have any problems with the PC version? Um, none that I can think about right now. Mouse and keyboard, Mo? I never do anything besides mouse and keyboard. That's a sad life. There are a lot of games on PC that are better with controller. Mm -hmm. How did you play it, Mike? Uh, originally, back in the day, on my 360, in a dark room in the middle of uh, an air-conditioned house. Um, I set the stage perfectly back then, and it, I, I just, it was the best. And this time, I played the Definitive Edition, the, the Collection remaster that was done in 2016, uh, and I played it on my Xbox One. It was just on sale. Mm-hmm. Twenty dollars. Yeah, good what price. A great deal. Uh, same. So I played the collector's edition back in two thousand seven when the game first came out on Xbox three hundred and sixty. Uh, it's still somewhere in the basement. And then I replayed the game as the Bioshock collection on Xbox One as well. Do you have a Big Daddy statuette? I do. Wow. It has since broken. I think the little drill broke off. It's crazy glued, but I still haven't. Oh. I actually have a Bioshock poster as well that sits in my office. It's like a film noir version of the Bioshock cover. I love it. And I don't know if I want to put it back up, but we'll just <laughs> we'll just leave it there. Well, that might be a good point to jump into the style of the game. Mm, that's a great point. So how does this game, how, how would you describe this game? Do we want to start with talking about what it is or what how it looks or how it plays? You lead the way. Um, what is Bioshock? How does it start? Um... It, if when before I replayed it, if you would ask me how it started, I would have said something about water. You go in the water, <laughs> and there's just like weird old. You take like, a bath. Yeah, like just steampunk styled, like old news radio, like stuff. So essentially, when I, you're you're from my understanding, you're flying, plane crashes, you dive underwater, <sighs> and you're in. You come into this. I guess new world, which is I guess Atlantis, more or less, to explain it to other people. You're, you're <laughs> that's in, a good way. Yeah, you're an in Art Deco Atlantis. Yeah, exactly. City it, under the sea. Exactly. That's like frozen in time, and everything's all submerged, and everyone's kind of passing along. And there's always like a person talking to you, explaining what's going on. You're seeing weird stuff, and then zombies attack you, and you have to blow them up or shoot them with a wrench, that you're smack, smack them with a wrench or whatever it may be. That's essentially what it is. It's a first-person adventure game where you have the ability to use weapons and eventually abilities to kind of survive and figure out what is going on, why are you there, and what's like what's the story behind all of this. Kind of the progenitor of the immersive sim to a certain degree, right? Kind yeah. of. Uh, I mean, I think Deus Ex back in the day was probably probably that. Um, I think this is one of the first games to ever have. Uh, Given the given a player the the morality ish system, where they can uh, you know make choices that feel like they have actual weight in the world, even if they don't in the end. Mm -hmm. So you go into the rapture. Your plane crashes outside of Iceland. Um, you don't know is much. That where it is? Yeah, it's, there's no a map that was drawn. It's essentially oh, sure. this I know triangle. It's somewhere in the Atlantic. 100. Yeah, right in the Atlantic, right near Iceland, off the coast of the United States, the eastern seaboard of the United States. And your plane crashes, and you start to hear a voice. And this voice is of Andrew Ryan. Who is Andrew Ryan? Andrew Ryan is a man who thought that the pigs in Washington and uh, <laughs> the, 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 the commies in Russia and the Vatican were all getting it wrong. And he wanted to create his objectivist utopia. And the only, I guess, the most practical way that he found to do this without influence from the outside world was to create a deep under the sea in the middle of the Atlantic where him and like-minded people could go and create a society through, I guess, on some level, anarcho-syndicalist um, methods. A city where the sweat of your brow will be your currency. There you go. He took the best of society, the scientist, 
the the scholars, the singers, etc., brought them down under the sea, and someone had to build somewhere had, waiting for me. That was the music in the first trailer, wasn't it? Yes, I I knew it. Is that a quote they usually did? Your sweat of your brow. Yes, I feel like I heard. Yeah, it, so. he talks about the the commies in in the USSR. They want to take everything from you. It's that voice all the time. The ones in Washington. They want to tell you how to live. Entitled to the sweat of his own brow. No, says the man in Washington. Yeah. Belongs to, you know, propaganda. Belongs to the poor. No, says the man in the Vatican. It belongs to God. No, says the man in Moscow. It belongs to everyone. And then you come up on a huge sign that says, no gods, no kings, only men. Only men. Which is a hell of a way to start a video game. You enter a bathysphere and then you are in rapture rapture and you have an incredibly scary interaction with splicers it's your first introduction to them and uh (laughs) your savior who you know comes and essentially saves you and guides you along the way is this voice you know he comes to you through the radio you pick it up um and it's this guy named atlas and he says look you stumbled into this and i have a family and i want to get them out and I need your help. And you're immediately placed in this moral moral view, moral dynamic of the game. You're given a purpose. You're going through all of this. You're not just running and waiting at this light lighthouse in the middle of the Atlantic, w- waiting for someone to find this crash plane. You feel like you have to go through because you need to help this person save his family. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's kind of the, the start of the game. Bioshock is a first-person shooter with kind of some adventure game elements, some immersive sim elements to it. Um, how did the game look? Like, we've kind of described the Art Deco feel. You know, it's based squarely in nineteen in the 1950s, I believe, or 1960s. Ish, yeah. Ish. It's dark as well. That's another thing. It's not. I wouldn't say it's like a bright game. It's like a, a mild, scary game, horror game, I guess, even though it's not that, like, really spooky, but... I, I've I was like I had some jump scares totally. um, a lot of the times and I really didn't like splicers even though they were pretty easy to take care of it was just like the speed and for some reason I want to ask this question why is it that all that like old audio clips and like sounds and music why is that creepy like I feel like it like so just you know like there's always like, mm-hmm. a record playing and it's like a weird like there's like some disturbance in the actual audio I feel like it, in like what, 50, 60 years? Will Gucci Gang be playing? <laughs> and will people be like, oh my God, oh my God. Gucci Gang? Gucci, Gucci Gang. Gang. Yeah, so like, what's, uh, is that what, like, what's, the, where did that come from? Why is that creepy? You know, I think, I think the reason it's creepy is, is that to play music, there needs to be someone there to listen to it and someone there to put it on. And the experience that you have in Rapture is largely empty of people. And when you do run into people, they are trying to kill you or murder you. Um, so I think any, I think when you hear the music, it's a sign that there is someone around that means to cause you harm. I think that's where it comes from. Jacob, what's your take? I just took it as like, old, it's old technology. <laughs> like right. I, I'm thinking like the sound design in the game is fantastic, mm-hmm. um, both so environmentally good. and then the music choices that they, they had. So if you think about like, this game's in the 60s, so maybe the music that they're bringing down to the ocean, if Rapture took a long time to to um, to be developed. Be, be developed, be built, you're thinking about 50s music, right? So to me, it's the, the transmission medium, so like record players and like probably the first cassettes that you would get. Like to me, it was just transmission medium more than like, hey, it's scary because. Mm-hmm. I thought they, they took a lot of care to make sure it sounded like it was from the correct era, mm-hmm. both in the way that characters spoke. I mean, I gave the mm-hmm. Andrew Ryan impression. Um, Atlas, Atlas is an immigrant from Ireland, if I if I remember correctly. Uh, everything from voice actor to music was well um, was well directed, and I appreciated that a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I I think they do a fantastic job putting you squarely in a time and place and a location, and yes. making that location believable and i know this was a huge part of the discussion when the game was in the zeitgeist and just came out but the world feels like a character in the way that very few other worlds feel like a character you know you hear every creak and groan of the city shifting under the the pressure of the atlantic you walk through these tunnels that lead from one building to the next and you see the leak 
you you're very aware um and and the color scheme reflects you know you see light which is i guess kind of weird to to see light that far down at the bottom of the atlantic but you see light and it gives everything this dark green hue um so they they do a great job making the the world of Rapture feel lived in. And think about when this game came out, right? It came out in 2007. The Xbox 360 was released in 2005, right? So this would have been I wouldn't say like one of the the biggest, but this would have been like the third run of games, the third Christmas of games. Mm-hmm. And like back in the day, this game looked like marvelous. Yeah, like this was the yeah, 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 this was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Even now, it doesn't look too shabby. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it really aged that bad. Like, it's, I, I still, I know, Mike, you don't like it, but I feel like it's still, if you haven't played it, you can get through it. You can get through it. You can enjoy the story because you don't know what's going on. And it's not like whereas a lot of older games where you're playing them, the mechanics are so brutal, the storyline's like nothing. And I think it's very, it, it does age well in the sense that if you haven't played it, it's something maybe you can check out. Absolutely. I, I'd agree with you, Mel. So the game is a shooter. Um, you have a few different guns to choose from, but in addition, you have these things called plasmids. Mm-hmm. What are plasmids? Plasmids are the result of a free market with uh, <laughs> a, a lack of ethics, where um, industry has been able to be unrestricted by, let's say, the FDA or any any agency holding back experimentation on human subjects. And they found a way to alter the genetics of a person in real time while they're alive to give them essentially superpowers. There's the power to create a trap, a little cyclone of air. There's there's the ability to shoot electricity and fire out of your hand. Um, and all of this is used through um, Eve and Adam, the two, I guess, equivalents of health and uh, mana that you have throughout the game. I think it's fair to say at this point, if you're still listening and you've not played Bioshock, look, Bioshock's a 12-year-old game, but if you still haven't played it, play it. It's about a 10-hour game. Come back to this podcast. Listen to it, because from now on, you're entering the spoiler room brawl. Do you want to talk further about what Adam and Eve truly are? I think you should go for it. Okay, so you find out later... Um, Dr. Tannenbaum, who is one of the main characters in the game, um, discovered these sea slugs, right? And these sea slugs created a substance that was almost like stem cells, which they called atom. Um, The thing was, they discovered that they could develop way more atom if they put these sea slugs inside of a human host. So what they ended up choosing, and this is where Frank Fontaine comes in, who's one of the major characters in the game, he created a business around putting these sea slugs in little girls in order to create more atom and turn kind of this this atom into uh, commercial products, which are called plasmids. And these plasmids, like you said, are just powers that you inject to essentially change your DNA so that you give yourself superhuman powers. And this is a market that is not regulated at all because that is not what... Uh, what Andrew Ryan believes in, he believes in the free market, including these very, very dangerous weapons. Were they were they orphan girls? Or yeah, okay, so they weren't just like random girls off the street. They were like, I guess it doesn't make it matter, but <laughs> yeah, they were. I think they they took orphan little girls, and that's where if you Michael mentioned earlier the the little sisters, um, that's what that's referring to. These like girls in white little dresses who are like demons, I guess. <laughs> but it's because yeah, they have all this power in them, and you get the choice to kind of save them or take their. Mm-hmm. powers mm-hmm. yeah you're presented really early on with a little girl who is stabbing away at a dead splicer corpse and atlas says to you you think that's little girl but that's actually a little demon uh or something along the lines yeah and uh a splicer walks through the door and sees a little girl and realizes his oppor- little sister and realizes his opportunity goes to attack her she screams and a big daddy shows up and that's also when you're confronted with just how deadly and and scary a big daddy can be and that's that submersible diver guy with a giant metal suit and the drill is the arm yeah. who's paired with every little sister has like the big daddy which protects her walking around so it's it's a very like strange so it's almost as if like i compared it to like when you whenever you see like baby bears in the wild you know mama bears around exactly and like you have to be careful so same thing whenever you see one of these little sisters you know the freaking big guys roaming around there and you can usually hear him um, and his presence most of the time. And again, speaking of how amazing the audio is, these these creatures have like a whale sound that comes from their larynx. That's, yeah, that's and you start hearing coming from the background. So if you don't see a little sister, you hear the footsteps. The big stomps. 
you yeah. hear the whale sound, and that's when you know that you're in trouble because these things are intimidating as hell. Yeah, they're in the quick too. They're so yeah. hard to take down. Yeah, you need to, you need to almost. I, I felt a lot of the times you have to unload all of your abilities and like multiple times to be able to take one down. And I, I think they would you'd consider them the major checkpoints throughout the game. They're uh, not really the bosses, but once you get to one and then another, you know you're progressing pretty steadily throughout the game because they're spread out pretty evenly. They're not just in one spot. And the crazy part is there's multiple different varieties of them. There's Rosie and then there's Bubbles, um, bubbles I, I guess. Hey, Mr. B, I see angels. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm, I, I do yeah. voices in my spare time. So there's, Please contact there's me. A <laughs> there's a big daddy with a rivet gun. There's a big daddy with a trill. And is it in this version of Bioshock that there's also a big daddy with a rocket? No, no. that's Bioshock 2. You know, it's okay. so funny, Mike. I always do the exact same thing. I'm like, was this the one where you can like have a weapon in one hand and ability and in the other? Wield, yeah. Or what, like, and it's like, no, no, that was Bioshock 2. I, yeah. think, I think I did like Bioshock 2 a little bit more just because of the... That's blasphemous. Yeah, yeah I, I don't agree with that I at think all. I think I did. I, I just <laughs> like having to like, really do two things at once. That was, it's just right. a mechanics thing. It has nothing yeah. to do with really the story because I can't even remember the story. So I guess we should then talk about how we played the game as a shooter what no did you guys have a strategy that you tended to employ what were your favorite weapons favorite plasmids tonics that you used what how did you guys get through the game yeah I, I'll, I'll go first i for, for some reason i always drifted back to either the machine gun or the pistol just because i always found bullets i was always had like ammo for it and it was like plentiful and i felt like it did a lot with big daddies every ability most of the time <laughs> whether it's trying to like immobilize them and then just unload bullets that that was kind of one of the main strategies i loved the swarm once i had it mm -hmm. it was just I, I don't even know if it was it was effective but it was more so just it was cool to see because i remember back then that was one of the first weird type of weapons that you saw in a game where it's not like a traditional rocket or a crossbow or a flamethrower mm -hmm. it, was, it wasn't electricity or fire electricity it, and fire are the most obvious yeah right and anything that deviates from that is like oh this is actually interesting and unique and kind of like an insomniac weapon yeah. in your hand it's like it, another game that I, I played was dishonored and they had the similar thing with the rats and i whenever mm -hmm. i when as soon as i played dishonored i'm like oh it's just like the swarm from bioshock <laughs> fine so in that game i only use the swarm as well um so that, that that's kind of the more or less the way i played it mostly trying to immobilize and just unload i really didn't like being jump scared it was mostly like I want to say I know it's bad to say, but I kind of played this game with my head down and stormed through a lot of the dark, scary parts. Whenever you get like super mm -hmm. overwhelmed, didn't really deviate from my techniques. Besides, get rid of everything in front of me and proceed. So you tended to use the swarm plasmid and the machine gun and yeah. revolver. I liked all the weapons in the game, which was surprising because usually I'm like, hey, one of these weapons yeah. is bad. Mm -hmm. These weapons are all good. I like yeah. the pistol because I'm typically like a guy who loves a revolver or a des desert eagle, like give me that gun it's first. It's a quick two and it's hits a hard. Yeah. yeah. And it's when the machine gun is updated or when it's upgraded rather, upgraded, yeah. it's it's a devastating weapon because there's no kickback so you can just kind of fire bullets at will. Um, you know how you said before that like the most basic strategy of just using incinerate and then the shock? Hmm. Guess what I used? No way, really? <laughs> the incinerate and the shock. I, I added more plasmids as I went. I found that the freeze was actually really good for like um, turrets and um, like drones that were coming in. And then running up and hacking them. Exactly. There's a lot of hacking in this game. Uh, there are two things I forgot about Bioshock. One, yo, there's a lot of hacking. There and is. also, yo, photography's cool. That's what I forgot about Bioshock. So my way would be for an enemy using the uh, shock to immobilize them and maybe throwing the incinerate on them to get a lot of damage yeah. and then use the pistol, the crossbow, the shotgun. Um, I didn't really experiment with that many powers. I, I, I would add powers and actually not try and bury them. So I added telekinesis. I added insect swarm. I added enrage. But like, really, I only use three pretty regularly. Mike, mm -hmm. how did you play? So... In my first playthrough, you know, I, I rotated through a lot of weapons. The machine gun was one of my favorites. Um, in this playthrough, uh, I only used the wrench and plasmids. Just for fun, right? Just Stop. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. No, it's like one of those things where like if you've played it so many times before, I really, really I like that. I like No, I'm in awe. That's oh. fun. I'm like, stop it. You're that good? Maybe that's why you didn't finish it. Yeah. Well, how'd you get through Big Daddies with just a wrench? You know, the thing, once you... Good question. Play, once you play through... Well, it wasn't just the wrench. I also had my plasmids. Okay. Um, once you know how to... Like, once you have a couple of plasmids on hand and you know what the Big Daddy's style is going to be, it's not that hard to dance gotcha. around them, gotcha. yeah, yeah, clock yeah. them in the head a couple times, yeah. shock them, set them on fire, let time take its toll. 
um, it, it you know it's more more patience thing than anything. And that wrench is really strong. Yeah. Let's let's not forget. And there are a ton of tonics that really help support playing through with the wrench. Like there's, uh, you know, I believe there's one that uh, freezes people or restores health whenever you hit someone. Cool. Um, there's and also if you free someone and then hit them with the wrench, it's <laughs> sometimes they a shatter. one hit kill, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of things in there that you can roll a loadout that absolutely helps you play with just the wrench and plasmids. Yeah, and, and it's fair to say there's three different categories yeah. of tonics too. The combat, the engineering, the physical, and those give you different kinds of bonuses, whether for your hacking, mm-hmm. for your character in general, or even for combat. Absolutely, and it also helps to just take things a little bit slower, hacking a turret whenever you can, and making sure you keep it with you to help deal with people as you go. Mm-hmm. And the photography actually tied into the tonic, the tonics in a very interesting way. So as you took take pictures of the different enemies, it's almost like, uh, I don't want to say like Pokemon Snap because that's a way to diminish what this game is. But there are other games that have like photography. But you get research as you take pictures of specific enemies. And as you take research, you get more damage against them. In some cases, you'll get more Adam or more Eve or you'll get special tonics that only come from those different uh, characters. Did you guys do any of the photography in the game? Uh, I did, um, especially the first time through. I use that camera a lot. Um, this time, not nearly as much. I, again, feel like I had explored everything in my first playthrough and wasn't getting quite as much this time through as I was then. You just wanted to burn through it as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I found I just I couldn't be bothered. I just I I I just wanted to play the game. I didn't really want to take photos. It just seemed like a non. It didn't seem like it was part of the game. It wasn't like a. I wasn't. I know you'd get like benefits from it, but it wasn't like something. Oh, let me just get benefits to play better. I just wanted to play. I, just, I don't know. It seemed like an additional step that I didn't want to do. One more question about the actual gameplay itself. Did the game feel dated to you? Because to a certain degree, I think the the shooting was very basic. I mean, I felt I felt the gameplay was still still good. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bioshock 2 feels better from a gameplay perspective because, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer that you should be able to shoot a plasmid with one hand and a gun with the other um, or chain some of these plasmids together. Um, but I, I don't think that, you know, I didn't feel that gameplay was dated. Yeah, it, well, the at, the, at the same time, dated. it's not like Horizon Zero Dawn. It's not like the new Assassin's Creed like, in terms of movement. It is what it was, but yeah, I didn't play it thinking, oh my God, this is like Knights of the Old Republic. <laughs> great for the time. No, no, no. It was, but that sounds like an insult when you say it's great for the time. I feel like it was a little bit above that. It was maybe, it's not amazing, but like it's, it wasn't something I was like, oh, the gameplay or oh, the mechanics. It well, was like... When you say Knights of the Old Republic, Michael, do don't get offended. <laughs> it's, it's not one of the best games ever made. Mike, those purely an attack on you, not really on anything okay. about that at all. Okay, as long as long as we're talking about the best game maybe ever made, <laughs> um, we can continue to talk about that. You mean how it's not Knights of the Old Republic? Uh, I think you're both on crack. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, Yoshi's Island, the best game ever made. Jacob, just leave your own house right now, please. <laughs> For argument's sake, I will. I would say yes, Jacob, just because I want to dig it even more into my yeah. <laughs> Let's name 10 of the games we Jacob, like more than quarter. did you feel that the, the gameplay was dated? I felt like the shooting was maybe a little bit dated. Okay. And I just, because of how basic it is, like there are how many weapons? There are six weapons. It's point the, and shoot. The movement yeah. is, is very, um, I don't want to say stilted, but it's like very mechanical, the movement itself. Um, but like you said, the combinations that you use between the plasmids and the weapons and the different enemy types and even the way they they come at, the enemies come at you from like an AI. The AI in this game is so is good. still good. So good. Yeah. So I feel like it was a combat puzzle in the same way that Halo could be a combat yes, puzzle. Yes. So I don't know why you're saying it suddenly feels dated because I don't feel the Halo games. I said Halo the shooting games. itself, yeah. just the shooting, okay. just the firing like of a, a weapon, feels. just how the guns feel. Guns feel, eh, everything else feels great. And maybe we're just like poking straws, you know, it's, it's hard for pulling me to... straws. What's the expression? Drawing straws? Splitting nope. hairs. There, there it is. Thank you. Um, I, I, it's hard for me to mount a huge offense against you here because I played with the wrench as my only weapon. <laughs> um, but I don't remember the weapons not feeling great but i'll i'll trust you on this um should we talk about maybe our favorite parts from the game now there's so many really good parts Mm -hmm. the first time you play them yeah 
Oh, God, you're still on this. Do you want to tell us maybe one of your favorite parts? Oh, so I, I think the opening, like when I mean the opening, I mean the first full area and until you get to like the medical pavilion is so tightly scripted with really impactful uh, events that easily sets an amazing impression. The moment you walk into the lighthouse and the lights turn on and you see Andrew Ryan holding a banner there in front of you. The moment you go through the bathysphere and you see the squid swimming away and you see, you know, all of rapture in front of you in its glory, but also in its decayed, decrepit state. Mm -hmm. Um, The moment the splicer in the bathysphere is attacking uh, the person who came to try and save you. Um, The moment that you, you stumble across a splicer who is uh, talking to her gun in a baby carriage. Um, that's such a great moment. It's the little moments. In yeah, it's, it's, it's a combination of a lot of cool stuff. Yes. Like I, I had one moment for me. It was very small when I first played the game. I was walking around and everything started getting like frozen. Everything was iced up. I'm yes. like, how am I getting through? Like I, my, I banged it a couple times. Like maybe there's like an extra like items that get in here. Nothing could happen. And then all of a sudden you get the, the incinerate ability. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and it was the coolest part was like a lot of times with a lot of video games, you'll see like things that are interactable. They glow a certain way or they mm-hmm. shine a certain way. With the environment here, it's like, no, 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 no. Just figure it out. There's ice. You have fire. You melt it, it starts melting piece by piece, yeah. piece by piece. It's very satisfying. And this is from way back when. Anything that you need to get through the game, they definitely make sure it glows, glows that gold. Um, like, you know, any any plasmids or Any or journal. Tonics, coins, yeah. money, yeah. Uh, audio logs, things like that. Um, but yeah, on the whole, they I, I'd agree with you, Mo, that they definitely trust you to figure out the puzzle. And, and that's a lot of what I've loved about the game when it came out. There was, you know, environmental-ish puzzles. Each combat was its own little puzzle. Um, I thought that was great. The moment that sticks the most in my memory is, I believe, when we're in Fort Frolic. Yep, I was, that was my favorite part of the game, too. Okay. Yep. You, 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 give it, you give it first. So there's a great video a there's a great video by game makers toolkit specifically about what makes fort frolic so great and fort frolic is run by um sander cohen and imagine sander cohen as like a joker-esque villain right yeah someone that that morality is gray and he's just there to have a good time so essentially what he's there to entertain yes he's there to entertain he comes on your radio he's a tortured artist that uh, art surrounds his entire world, right? So imagine everything is plaster cast around him. So like people are plaster cast. um, There's statues that are plaster cast. And he kind of just comes around and says like, my disciples have betrayed me. Their art is not worth it. What I want you to do is create your own art by killing these four people. So kill Fitzpatrick, kill Rodriguez, Finnegan, and Cobb. These are my disciples. I want you to murder them. And then take a picture of the murder, and we're going to put it on this piece of art, this installation, that will be my masterpiece, right? So you go, and that's when the, the game actually opens up. It's a very linear game, but in that area, in Fort Frolic, imagine the, the mall from Dead Rising, right? It is a mall that you have freedom to explore with your under your own volition you go to whatever store you want first and you're not given uh, an arrow in the game you have an arrow hey go here go here go here you choose how you want to do these objectives um per your own way um, do so you choose or are you a slave jacob that's a great question that we're going to answer a little bit later <laughs> okay um ask the vatican but it's great because you know you get their different stories each encounter is different and then the final encounter that you have or prior to the final encounter, you actually do an encounter to Chekhovsky's Waltz of the Flowers, where after you've killed three people, you actually do like a little dance where you're killing people to the music. Fantastic. And then at the end, you're given the choice, do you kill Sander Cohen or not? You don't have to kill him. He doesn't try and kill you. He's like, great masterpiece. Cool cool job, dude. Enjoy my prize. I'm going to peace out. See ya. And you don't have to kill him. It's so cool. It's so neat. Mike. So that is... all of Fort Frolic is your favorite. That is that is my favorite part of the entire game is Fort Frolic. Okay. There is one specific moment in Fort Frolic, and I don't remember the specifics about it. Okay. But what I do remember is you walk into a room, and I believe it's frozen, and mm-hmm. there's ice everywhere, and you see these statues uh, all around you, 
and you walk into the middle of the room and the lights go off and when it come back on all of the statues are now disappeared and uh you turn around and there are the splicers just coming at you and i remember having the most visceral horrified reaction um because i was so immersed in the game and i thought it was such a simple but really well executed um scare mm-hmm. um that it is stuck with me as maybe my favorite moment in all of bioshock yeah and and you know it it still probably is so as the lights go off and as these like plaster casts splicers move around you did you realize the cool part about it the cool part is there's a weapon upgrade station in the area that you're describing if you don't use the upgrade station these enemies will never attack you really but if you use the upgrade station in that area they will begin to attack you sometimes they'll appear out of nowhere right sometimes they'll stop movement and then they'll start again it is so cool so neat and reminded me of the original Condemned. I don't know if you remember that game. I remember it, but I never played it. I'm I'm not a scary games guy. Right, I forget. Yes, yes. And this is is one of those games that I actually felt empowered and I felt like I had enough tools and they weren't hitting me with jump scares. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, The the enemies were actually scary for most of the game. Yeah. Or for a good chunk of the game. Yeah. To me, Sander Cohen is like one of... He doesn't get talked. Everyone talks about Frank Fontaine. Everyone talks about Andrew Ryan, but I feel like everyone forgets Sander Cohen and how like he's almost like the Mad Hatter in this game. Uh, when you first get introduced to him, there's curtains that come down around your bathosphere, and there's a giant rabbit's mass that comes down. I just thought aesthetically it was very cool as well. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Mo, did you have a favorite moment? Um, not specifically. Besides just like the mechanics of the game, no. We've gone over our favorite moments, the moments that stand out the most. Um, but I have to ask guys, how did you decide what you were going to do with the little sisters? I'll I'll go first. Um, it was a little girl. I didn't want to like kill them. Um, so yeah, no, no, no. no. So essentially I kind of just took the real life route. I don't know. I'm looking at Jacob and he's like, I killed them all. I harvested every single one. Hey, guess what I did? You harvested every single one. I killed them all. Jacob McCord's a bad man. No, look, when I first played through the game, I didn't really understand what the morality system was. So like, depending on how I felt when I picked up the game, I'm like, ah, I'm going to save this girl because like, whatever. But then I'm like, she's a bad, bad girl and her big daddy was was bad to me. So they're going to die. So I did a little of both. Like I didn't choose one one path. Uh, But this time I, I I was a cruel... A cruel, cruel yeah. boy and killed them all. Okay, so you killed them all. Mm-hmm. Mo, did you save them all? I saved all, but I think I I did harvest one just to oh. see what was going to happen. Yeah, so that gives you the bad ending. No, this still gives you the good ending. No. I didn't think it did. I, I, think, I think even when you harvest one, it gives you the bad ending. No, well, I got the good ending. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you didn't actually, like, maybe you didn't save after you had harvested. I don't know. Aren't, Mo, aren't you supposed to be bad? I'm the neutral, yeah. and Mike, you're but like, you know what it was? Good? When I first, I remember when I first played the game, I did, I'd follow the Jacob, but I harvest every single one because you get the benefit. You're able to get powers. Why yeah. would you get the benefit why, immediately? Yeah, and like, why would you not do that? But just playing it the second time through, I'm like, I let's just kind of make a decision. Let's play the game as if I'm in this game kind of thing. I didn't really mm-hmm. take that. Just like, I remember with the Wolf Among Us, I kind of was like, you know what? Let's be honest. Let's be bad. If it needs to be bad, it's be good. If it needs to be good, but like that's not like try to be something else. You and put it, yourself in the ethical situation. Yeah, pretty much. Just to kind of, I, th- I feel like that's what the kind of goal of the game developers is, is to kind of make you make that decision. But like if you if you play a game as like a character, like you want to kind of be different from like your the, your world that you live in. Like Jacob likes to enjoy kind of being that little trying to do things he can't do kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. That I kind of took the approach of let's just kind of make a decision as it kind of presents itself. Like, mm-hmm. what would I do? And that's what I did. That makes a lot of sense. I I also chose to save them all. Um, what? Why? But I think you. Well, it, it, you know, on some level, it's, um, you know, the the ethical thing to do. <laughs> yeah, dude, they're they're Power. they're orphan yeah. children taken Power. away, and you have the ability to save them. <laughs> like, yeah. why would you? Power. It's yeah. funny that you bring up Mo. That it's like, well, obviously you're gonna try and save the little girl um, because you feel bad otherwise. In initial versions of the game and in initial, you know, prototyping, they had the little sisters as slugs, um, as Jacob alluded to, and no one no ever one had a moment them, yeah. of saving them. So they needed to find a way to personalize it and humanize and and make it the most vulnerable person you could think of. Um, 
and and I think they did a really good job. As much as it's a, an extremely weird dynamic to have these little girls and these massive diving suit Don't monsters, me. you know, um, I I I absolutely saved them all, and I, I think the moral, you know, decision to save them all would be felt more distinctly if you were ever at a lack of uh, atom to purchase more plasmids or upgrades or things like that. Um, but because once you save a certain amount, Tenenbaum leaves gifts for you that make up for what you've lacked in immediate atom you get from harvesting them. So, you know, you're, you're made whole at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's just not immediately. You get it up front. That you, so you yeah. get like 160 atom if you harvest and you get, what, 80 atom if you just decide to save the girls? Is that Some, kind of how that works? Something like that. Yeah. I don't remember what the actual amount was, but I, I know that at the end of the day, you're you're made whole. Tenenbaum leaves you gifts yeah. um, to make it worthwhile. Okay. Mm-hmm. I did a quick little Google search because I did get the good ending. It says, if you save all but one, you still get oh. the good ending. But if you kill any more than one, then you get... The, the other ending. I really like that choice because that that doesn't screw the player like Mo that wants to explore and see what happens if you decide to kill one. I mean, I think it's an easy thing to save scum. You kill one (laughs) to see what it looks like. You restart. You do that Big Daddy fight again. Have you heard of this thing called YouTube? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, we've talked about what the... We've alluded to whether it's a good or bad ending. What are the story beats along the way? Um, and then what does what do the different endings look like? So to a certain degree, like this game kind of, and I hate to say this, but it kind of turns into a lot of a series of fetch quests mm-hmm. where they're like, hey, go here, save my family. Would you kindly go here? Yes, would you would you kindly go here? And uh, you have to, you know, the, the forest in Arcadia gets destroyed and you have to create a solution that will reverse that and bring the forest back so there's no problems with oxygen. Mm-hmm. You go into Fort Frolic because your radio goes... Essentially, you're going down a linear path to get yourself to a point where Atlas, who is kind of the savior of Rapture or the, the liberal leader of Rapture who wants you to reclaim Rapture for the common man... Bernie uh, Sanders, no, okay. <laughs> Bernie Sanders, yes. Bernie Sanders wants you to uh, like help him find his family and then basically destroy Andrew Ryan. But it doesn't start out that way. It starts out as, help my family, and then my family dies, dies, and now you have to go over go uh, and kill Andrew Ryan because that's the only justice there is, right? And it just slowly turns from my family, my family, to now I need revenge. Go kill Andrew Ryan without much explanation as to why. Is that, a, is that an appropriate assessment of the story? Absolutely. I think I think it's a pretty good assessment. You know, there are a lot of little quests within, you know, initially deal with Dr. Steinman, um, then deal with Sander Cohen, move through. Um, and, and at the end of the game, or at the seemingly end of the game, you are finally confronted face to face with Andrew Ryan. And he makes it very clear that, you know, a man chooses and a slave obeys. And he uses the trigger word that uh, has been built into you um and he says would you kindly kill me and you the the character without your control takes a golf club and kills andrew ryan and it all becomes clear that all along you've been uh controlled by atlas Mm -hmm. who is revealed to actually be frank fontaine uh essentially a mobster inside of rapture who's been going head to head with andrew ryan and uh, the trigger is would you kindly and every time he says would you kindly you then have no choice but to do it and you know from a meta perspective uh, this is really to, to draw the you know to draw a very clear line and say hey you know as gamers you really what you have is the illusion of choice but we funnel you down very tight corridors and alleys we use narrative hooks to make you feel like this is your choice and this is what you want to do. But there's really only one way that you can get through this game. Mm-hmm. And that's to complete all of these objectives. If you actually had a choice, you'd never be able to get to the end of the game. Mm-hmm. And I think what Bioshock did at the time that completely overwhelmed me in that moment, like I, I was crying. I, I thought it was such an impactful thing, not only for the story itself, but what it made me realize about video games it was fantastic at showing what the limitations of game design are and, and how you, uh, you know, 
behaviorally condition uh, a player to, to do what you want them to. Um, but now it doesn't seem like it strikes that as well. I think this that moment is set up incredibly well. Um, when you walk into Andrew Ryan's, or right before you walk into Andrew Ryan's office, there's this like painted or even bloodied on the wall, would you kindly? And that's when you start to get that inclination of like, maybe something's something's going on here. And much like you, my jaw was on the floor when I played this game in 2007 and went, when when all of your expectations about the game were subverted, when you're like, hey, I'm going to complete the seven-hour game where I, I get the bad guy, I get Andrew Ryan, and I, I, I beat him up and I take him in and I kill him. Um, but when he hands you the golf club and when you like murder this man with a golf club and leave half of the golf club in his skull and realize that, oh, oh no, I am a sleeper agent of a really worse, a really terrible, terrible man. I don't know about you, but this moment, like it still kind of resonates as, as one of the top five moments in gaming for me, just because I I didn't expect it. It came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was a time I played it. I think I played it when I was... Like 20, how old am I now? I don't even know. That was 12 years ago when I was like 18 years old, right? So like that was a really impactful moment that came out of nowhere that I didn't really fathom could even happen. And like you said, in some other games, Undertale, I think of, Stanley Parable, some of your expectations around narrative and game design are subverted and it's super cool. Mm -hmm. I absolutely think it was hugely impactful at the time. It made me and a whole lot of other people think about games and game design a lot differently and games as an art form, which started leading those chants of Bioshock being the Citizen Kane of games. Um, but it, yeah, it, it doesn't, it isn't quite as impactful now. And I think that twist makes playing through the game less rewarding because you are then, at least in my case, very frustrated seeing all the different moments where you're you're presented with the fake illusion of choice, but not actually having the choice. And I think the beauty of Bioshock, especially your first time through, is that you are morally outraged at the things that happen, and you, as a player, want to do these things. They, they use rhetorical tools to get you on side and, and do the bidding of the developers in a fantastic way that... The second time through, you can see all of the little scripts and machinations and and narrative, you know, ploys to get you to do something that, you know, you ultimately don't want to. Would it be one of the first like major games that gave you that kind of moral decision making the or the multiple endings kind of style? I know I know you guys played Fable. I'm not sure if that came out before or after, but yeah, Fable did come up before because that was on the original Xbox. Yeah, would, would this one be the first like cross platform? Well, this was originally only on PC and Xbox 360, and then years, a couple of years later, they was, did a bad PS3 port, <laughs> yeah. I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and and the Xbox fanboy in me at the time was very pleased <laughs> that the PlayStation version was subpar. When did Spec Ops: The Line come out? Because that reminds me of a lot. And if you again, we've named a lot of games later. here. Spec Ops: The Line. We've yeah, named they, Undertale. They, we've done podcasts about these. Check these out on LeftBehindGame.club. Go ahead, Mo. No, I think yeah, it, I think it did come out afterwards. But at the same time, maybe it was Bioshock that like kind of showed people, hey, games are not just mindless playing. You can actually kind of take them to a different way. You can you can make them visually completely different, and the audience will appreciate it and buy the, the yeah the, the game. Maybe maybe that's what the acclaim is for. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're. I think you're spot on, though. And and I don't mean to to say that the game is not fantastic. What I mean is my re, like my playthrough of it now, knowing what all the beats are, knowing all the scripted events, um, it really takes the wind out of the sails. You know, it took the wind out of my sails playing the game after that turn. Because boy, like it's rough. It's rough. It it's to me th- this is like eighty percent of a really good game, and then like. It just like totally falters. And that's even back in the day, I'm like, boy, this just does. I, can I just finish this? <laughs> Jeez, I, I'm a big daddy now. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and the final boss battle is just a joke. It's, it's, it was such a good, um, such a good example of the limitations of game design that it even has just an unsatisfying final boss battle, which is you finally are able to confront uh, Frank Fontaine and his way of dealing with you confronting him and trying to get even is that he overloads himself with as much atom as he could get and turns into a giant Atlas-sized boss. Um, and, you know, you you then have this, I think, grossly unsatisfying final boss battle. 
that that just feels out of place uh, with the rest of the game. And the ending, even like d- depending on the ending you got, the endings themselves were also disappointing because you're like, what? I, I did all that and I get a thirty second cutscene saying like, either you took over the world or like you let the girls free. That was it. It's so disappointing. I mean, I cried at the ending. Did you? I did because I thought it was so incredibly heartwarming. <laughs> Um, and Guess I'm a heartless brat then. Yeah, well, you did murder <laughs> you, you, everything. Yeah, you got so. the bad ending. If you got the good ending, it was worth it. Yeah, let the spice splicers go free. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So maybe that's why I, it resonated with me a lot more. Um, but I, I can I can see why it might not have felt like a great payoff if you've murdered every little sister along the way. I'm a bad bad man. Yes, you are. I hope it was worth it. I really do. <laughs> it was because now I'm in control of the world. Um, can I ask? Can you ask you guys a question? I think the the thing that I came to appreciate as someone who didn't really understand politics and didn't read books when I was 18 years old, um, what I came to appreciate is the the politics of this game. Um, Mike, I, I warned you in advance that I wanted to talk about Randian politics, just a Randian philosophy, Randian philosophy, just a little bit. Objectivism. Um, can we just talk about the game's politics for just just a second, just a hot second? Ugh. Yuck. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's tough. Um, How long were you a fan of opt- uh, objectivism, Mike? I, there, was a, there was a phase in my life when I was a teenager that relied on people and didn't realize I relied on people uh, where I identified as an objectivist where I took the ideas in this game and didn't understand how strong of a critique it was. Um, yeah, ob- uh, yeah, I think it's easy to fall into the objectivist view of the world where man is a heroic force and Ayn Rand's novels are man as a romantic hero that, you know, a single person is able to, you know, stop the engine of the world is able to be so impactful. And so, um, you know, revolutionary that, that they can move mountains that they can carry the world on their back, you know, Atlas shrugs. Mm -hmm. Um, The, the game is, I think a, a good but simple critique of the ideas of objectivism that, um, you know, man is the best, uh, you know, judge, uh, and that through our own individualism, radical individualism, we're able to come to a better society. I think <laughs> this game is a clear critique of a completely free market, um, where externalities are not always not always born out as uh, a downside for the people who take risks with other people's lives. Mm-hmm. I think uh, one of the things that this game outlines quite well is, you know, the tragedy of the commons that when there is no, um, no downside for people looting the public good, the public good becomes uh, overwhelmed and unsustainable and you have negative outcomes that, mm-hmm. You know, you think you, of the people that built Rapture, right? Like they were just kind of, they built this great place, and then they were just left to their own devices. And most of them either became, um, they became junkies, they mm-hmm. became splicers, or worse, yeah. they just died. And the game kind of touches that a little bit. And that's as a as a thirty year old man who like kind of understands a little bit more than I did when I was eighteen. That's what I came to appreciate is the game's um, commentary on like. Randian philosophies am I saying that right Randian philosophies around reality around reason around like radical self-interest um, I thought that that was the the cool part for me especially going back to some of the of the audio logs mm-hmm. and seeing some of the secondary characters and what their politics were I was mm-hmm. I was really surprised by that so many people uh, complaining and you can hear the splicers you know as they walk around uh, you know saying man my life was supposed to be better here I was promised more than what I than what I got, and they were people who were crushed under a system that didn't um, that that used them, you know, as if they were expendable. Um, I, I think there's there's a lot a lot in this game if you want to dig deep, and everyone on the internet has done their take and and dug deep into it. So I I don't want to you know add more to that. I would point you. And anyone who's interested in it into a wealth of discussion online um, because I just I can't do it justice in the way others can. Do we want to briefly just touch on the sequels and like what if any of you have played them? Did you guys play Bioshock 2 or Bioshock Infinite? I'm sure, Mike, you had to have 
played it just because of my birthright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I played those. I I actually didn't play two for a while because I knew Ken Levine uh, had little to do with it, and it was only when Minerva's Den came out that I I decided to play it because uh, really really had a lot of um, strong strong. Uh, praise in favor of it. What, so what were the what, problems with it? Why did people not like Bioshock Two? I, I I thought it was fine. Like I, I maybe I didn't have the backstory or like the I don't know any of the developer. I just kind of looked at its face value, a steampunk style story game with some cool abilities, and I just that's that's the reason why I played Bioshock Two. Yeah, I, I think people had issues with uh, the narrative. I think people had issues with it just not being led by Ken Levine. Um, I think that was a large part of it. Like, you know, the game was still very good. Um, and Bioshock Infinite was another game that was, I think, really, really well done. Yes. Um, but, you I know, the story gets a little bit more convoluted. Yeah. How did Boy, you that's feel? a story. How did you feel when you found out Bioshock Infinite was no longer under the sea? Do, 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 do. Until the very end of the game. Spoilers! Spoilers. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was... I, I love the idea of, you know... One being completely under the sea, and then three being up completely above the earth, mm-hmm. um, and dealing with other ideas about you know how to structure society and govern people, and uh, you know organizing. Yep, race, religion, American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Exceptionalism. It's boy, that game is racist. Manifest destiny. Yeah, but I think that's something that we shouldn't even touch because boy, that game is racist. But uh, Minerva's Den. One thing that wasn't mentioned. You know the connection one of our past episodes with Minerva's Den, right? Why don't you enlighten us, Jacob? The game designer on Minerva's Den is Steve Gaynor, who went on to make um, Fulbright, who went on to make Gone Home, which is an episode that we and have. Tacoma. And Tacoma, which maybe someday we'll play on this on this, uh, on this program, be, maybe. Maybe on the docket. Maybe on the docket. But uh, no, I played Bioshock Infinite back in the day, and I really came to appreciate it. And from... So I looked at videos of what Bioshock 1, 2, and Infinite looked like. Infinite, like, really looks amazing in 10, 1080p, 60. Um, so if you, if you are willing to go into that game, like, with an open mind, and, like, take in the story of Comstock and... I think we should save all of our thoughts on the other games. Yeah, Boy, I have thoughts. Recently, I've been thinking about replaying Infinite just because I feel like I maybe zipped through it and I vaguely remember remember the story and the gameplay. That's something maybe we should put on the docket, assuming everyone's all okay with it. Yeah. I, I really want to play that game. I'm going to rage while we talk about that game, just <laughs> to let you know in advance. So Cool. Uh, any further thoughts about Bioshock, uh, a game by uh, Irrational Games, mm-hmm. which we didn't mention um, Ken Levine, who wrote mm-hmm. this game, he has a new studio, Ghost Story Games. Mm-hmm. They haven't put out their first project yet. I know. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. He, I remember him closing down at Rational or 2K Boston um, and writing kind of a, a short manifest that said, hey, we're going to be working on narrative blocks, and that's going to be the thing that we think is the next form of game design, the next way to push the envelope. Are there any projects that have been announced or anything? Because someone's paying the bills, and in order to pay the bills, you have to know of a product that's coming out of the pipeline. Yeah, well, you know, from from what I've seen, 2K is run with a very long vision in mind. Um, it's it's the, one of the few publishers, I think, that would give Rockstar a blank check and say, you take all the time you need to make a massive hit, yeah. and when you do, um, it will have a long leg. That's so and crazy. The same thing happened with Red Dead Redemption 2, and... I'm sure the same thing is happening with whatever Ken Levine is deciding. The to, big to difference, though, is he cut the studio and said, "Like, I'm going to hire 12 people." Okay, that makes sense. And then now I think I just googled it. They have 25 employees, so like, yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, it's not a big check that 2K is writing for potentially mm-hmm. the biggest game of whenever this thing comes out in 2020, 2022, mm-hmm. whatever. Especially in a day where like games change all the time. We have a Fortnite that pops out. We have things that just come up all the time. You never know what's going to stick. And if you're spending six years, seven years in development, first of all, how do you retain your talent on the team to continue the consistency of building a game? And how do you know? Like you just dump six years worth of salaries, overhead, and all of a sudden you spit out something that maybe the new generation of gamers won't pick up and your old generation who's waiting for it may not be playing anymore. The thing that he also went on to do, do you remember the projects that he was asked to do, the movies? Logan's Run. Yeah, so Logan's run. he was tapped to run, do Logan's Run and write a pilot for The Twilight Zone. So I don't think that ever came to fruition, but like Ken Levine, well, in a Hollywood, tour in the medium. <laughs> Hollywood uh, 
in, in a lot of cases, people are commissioned to write scripts or come in and rework scripts. And, um, you know, you, you often don't see their version come out, but they are either credited for some of the ideas or paid to do a version of it to provide some structure. Um, so, it, you know, it could still be in the works. It could be stuck in production hell. You know, we'll, we'll see one day whether it actually sees the light of day. He strikes me as like the big ideas guy. Yeah, I mean, he, I think he he did a really great job of tackling this. Um, any final thoughts about Bioshock before we wrap it up? I think it's a fantastic game to play through once. And I think you should cherish the memories and the experience of it the first time that you play. I think you should make a very deliberate effort to to play it knowing um, knowing how impactful and and rewarding the game can be. Um, but I think you should leave the experience at, at a one-time playthrough because it loses a lot of its luster and charm if you go back and see all of the strings moving behind the scenes. Yeah, I can, I can pretty much say retweet. That's the exact, exact same um, thing on my end. But I feel like if you're listening to this podcast, you've hopefully played it already uh, or else there's... There's nothing else to say. Yeah, if you've listened to this podcast and you haven't played Bioshock, you've played Bioshock. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. You ruined all the big things. And Boys, know. I'm so glad that I didn't get the chain tattoos on my wrist. Did you think about that? Oh, it was the closest I've ever gotten to getting a tattoo. Really? Yeah. When was this? Was this recent or was this way back in like high school or something? Way back in the day. Like uh, I thought about it for years. Oof. Like I got so close to actually getting those. Uh, I guess well, well, now you're in the industry. Maybe it would have been like a. Oh no! <laughs> I'm so glad. Like every time I think about getting a tattoo now, it, I think back to how close I was to getting those, and I thought like, oh no, yeah. I can't do this. I'm gonna regret it. It's like those people that get the Kratos tattoos on their yes. forearms Ugh. with the blades, and I'm yeah. like, five more years. And like, if there's something that you identify with with a game, and you want to put something on your body, like cool. But I don't know if I yeah. want to put that on my wrist. So if you have, dear listener, any regretful tattoos or video game related tattoos, don't at me. Um, but let Jacob and Mo know you can do that by joining our discord server. You can find that by going leftbehindgameclub.com or leftbehindgame.club. There's a big fat button in the middle of the website. You click it. It'll take you into the discord or you can at the boys at left behind club on Twitter. Um, and we're also on Instagram. And would you kindly, uh, if you like us on iTunes, would you kindly give us a five star review and just leave it there? And now you have no choice. You have to. Would you kindly? I said it. Yeah, exactly. Jacob, where, where can the fine folks find you? You can find me on the internet at Jacob McCourt on all major social media platforms. And you can find me in the Discord too. Michael, where can the fine folks find you? You can find me at RufaloM on most social places online. And soon uh, at an inbox near you at uh, recap.gg. I'm going to be sending out a weekly email that summarizes the happenings in video games and esports. Uh, just a really quick digest. So look forward to that. I'll put out an announcement on our Discord and on Twitter uh, as soon as that's ready to go. And you can find me at Emmertotti um, and Emmertotti.com. Michael, take us home. And that, my friends, is one less game left behind. Left behind.